So then I said to the guy, I don't want that in my soup. <laughs> oh, 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 Riley, look, look, we have some listeners with us here today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Weird, a show where Riley and I chat about things like uh, the economy, uh, stock market, and ledgers, and things like that, <laughs> okay? And each week, our show is brought to you at the same time by the Bubble Soap Company. Remember Bubble Soap for all your laundry needs. Back to you, Dan. We really need to get, like, some sort of sponsor on this show. <laughs> I don't know how. Just to clean up the beginning of our show, it'd be nice to have a little thing. I don't know either. If anybody out there owns a company... We have a global audience. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. It's funny, though, when I listen to podcasts, it's always the same sponsors. Yes. Like, it's always the same ones, right? Yeah, there's that hiring firm one. The online psychiatrist one. Better help. I think better yes. help. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that would be a good one for us. Yeah, that if the shoe fits. Right? Mm -hmm. No, I don't know. We're kind of, uh, I think we, and I, I'm not being silly here, I, we do spend most of our time just working on the show. And we have our other careers, so it's yeah, not yeah, like, yeah. anyway. But maybe, yeah. we're just, maybe we're just too punk rock to sponsor. I like to think that that's part of it. Yeah, we're, um, it's my potty mouth. I mean, we and, and we have had offers from some of those large podcast companies yes yeah but they seem sleazy yeah and then they and they force you to take whatever they throw at you and i'm not comfortable with that all right riley you're well absolutely totally well you're you're fiddling with your mic yeah i'm just worried about my levels because um i can never hear the microphone in my headphones oh that's weird okay Riley, I have a different show again from uh, what I normally would would present to you and our listeners. Uh, I felt like the lie, like this whole season, I feel like I've gone dark quite a bit. So I wanted to do something that wasn't quite as dark, but also something that this is a big one that I've been sitting on since the beginning. This is a show, a story that I have wondered about and thought about ever since I was a little kid. In fact, I remember there was a, um, the comic book of Tintin did a, had this as the sort of setting and back background of the story. And, and ever since then, I've been very interested in this place, but didn't know really a lot about it. The only, the only Tintin cover that I ever think about is the red and white rocket. What's, what's that? It's the famous one where there's just a red and white rocket on the cover. Oh, I, I don't remember. I think it's Tintin Goes to Space. Remember, didn't Spielberg do a Tintin movie and it bombed? You know what? I actually liked it. I brought my son to see that whenever it came out several years ago. I actually dug it. It was in 3D. It was fun. It was just a fun movie. We had to read those books in French class. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was some of the French stuff that I would have had at home growing up in an Irish-French uh, family. So, anyway... So, Riley, mm. tonight, the story that I'm bringing you is the story of Easter Island. Ah. Yes. I have a lawn ornament of Easter Island, of one of the you heads. Really? I do, oh. actually. A little concrete guy. All right. Mm -hmm. Cool. A so, Moai? A Moai, they're called. M-O apostrophe A-I. Look at you embracing the other language. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Easter Island, or Rapa Nui as it's known by its indigenous people, is truly a unique place. It's located smack in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean. If you look at it on a map, it's, it's kind of in between Chile and New Zealand. And it's this lonely, tiny little dot. If you scroll out far enough on Google Maps, it disappears rather quickly. This mm -hmm. place is really small. Rapa Nui is one of the most enigmatic places in the world. From the time Dutch explorer Jacob Roegveen first spied the island on Easter Day, 1722, hence the island's name. Ah, okay, yes. so it was found on Easter Day. It was. I always wondered that. Me too. Why is it called Easter Island? I thought the explorer's name was Easter. Did you really? I did. Well, most places are named after the people that right, found them. Right, right. Well, he named it after, I mean, it was a pretty insignificant place initially. Uh, it's just this tiny little... A piece of land, the spit of land. So the, the people of Easter Island lived prior to that in absolute isolation from the outside world. There is no more remote place in the world than Easter Island. And what I mean by oh. that is it's the, the next closest border. I think it's over 3000 miles away. 
Wow. It's far. Despite recent influxes of tourists and adventure seekers, Easter Island remains one of the most remote islands on Earth. There are excellent hotels and even an airport that connects the island with the outside world. Yet, the mystery of the place remains. I can only imagine how expensive it is to oh fly my God, there. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Well, it'd have to be, and they're all charter flights, right? Yeah, so, yeah, my God. The famous Moai, who I just mentioned, the, the giant stones that stand 40 feet tall, spark wonder and awe at the craftsmanship and work required to move and sculpt each one. Yet, somewhere deep inside, their sight also provokes fear. Fear of what we do not comprehend and of darkness and isolated places, primal and base fears of the other and the unknown. Yet these fears, hardened by centuries of colonialism and fictional tales of, and I'm air quoting here, primitives, Easter Island is rich in culture, archaeological treasures, and yes, mystery. Loving it. So one of the first big mysteries about this place is who are these people and how did they get there? Really? Yeah. Right? So how the population came to be there has puzzled scholars for centuries, sparking intense debate over the origins of the indigenous people on Rapa Nui. I mean, there's lots of islands in the Pacific, but there's no people on them. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's not, it didn't just randomly happen. Some contend that they came from South America, while others suggest they're of Polynesian origin. Either direction would have been an immense voyage and covered thousands of miles of open ocean in sea craft that would not have been designed for such a journey at the time that they think the, the island would have been inhabited. Most favor the Polynesian theory and say the inhabitants arrived around 400, what is it, AD. There's, we used to, when we were kids, say AD and BC. Now it's BCE and... Is it? Yeah. What's BCE? Well, see, I think they've changed it so that it's not before Christ. It used to be Latin for, like it was like, as a kid, I always thought it was before Christ and after death, right? But it, after death doesn't make sense. It was it was no. the year of his our Lord's birth or something. I think is the AD in Latin or something like that. But anyway, so it's changed. I didn't know that it's changed. So four hundred years after the birth of Christ, they think sometime around there that the that people started to settle it and that it had continued for hundreds of years afterwards. The idea is backed by both linguistic experts and archaeologists with islanders thousands of miles apart being able to understand one another. So linguistically, there are connections with uh, Rapa Nui or Easter Island and some of the other Polynesian islands in the greater area. I'm going to do what you always do to me. I'm going to ask you a question that, yeah, you, yeah, wrote, go ahead. that you likely don't have the answer for, but it just hit me in the head. Yes. Um, did they ever do DNA analysis to see what the DNA leads to? They did Riley? That's a fantastic question and a great segue to this next bit. In 1994, actually, uh, they they found 12 skeletons they that they unearthed. They did DNA testing and they showed to be Polynesian in origin. Perfect. Gotcha. Okay. Good. Legends on Rapa Nui tell of how some 1,500 years ago, a Polynesian chief by the name of Hotu Matua once lived on the island of Hiva. One night, a dream told him that a disaster was to befall his land and that it would sink beneath the waves. So, Matua sent seven explorers toward the morning sun in search of a new home and salvation. After several days' sail, they reached what would become known as Rapa Nui. The chief now traveled to the island in two great ships, settling there with his wife, family, and 100 others. He named this new land Tapito Etu Henua, which means the world's navel. I love that kind of language. It's beautiful. It's actually very beautiful. It is. Yeah. However, the Polynesian origins of Easter Island are not universally accepted. With the famous Norwegian adventurer Thor Heyerdahl. I love his name. Thor Heyerdahl. Yeah. Hey, do you know what I just saw? The Northman. Oh, is it good? It's good. I like, well, I like that guy's movies. Like, I like The Witch. Yeah. Like, I like all the, and I love The Lighthouse. I love the stuff that yes. he's done. It's really good. Uh, did you, did you rent it? It just found its way into my home. Okay. Okay. I really want to see, that's a movie I really want to see it's badly. really good. Yeah. So, Thor Heyerdahl believed that members of a pre-Inca society had left Peru in antiquity and sailed in the prevailing westerly trade winds. 
And to prove his theory, in 1947, Heyerdahl sailed 4,300 nautical miles for three months on nothing more than a balsa raft that he named the Contiki. It's a very oh. famous expedition. And a very famous restaurant. <laughs> There was a very famous restaurant called the Contiki in Montreal. Yeah, I've heard of it. And they would serve like flaming Mai Tais, yes. you know, with the big volcano. And there was a fish pond in the restaurant. I've been there. And it was amazing. It's very of a time. I went to a similar restaurant in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, called Mackay's. And it was my first exposure to Polynesian cuisine and culture. Because they would have the dancing mm -hmm. and, you know. It was great. It was my grandparents. They had a condo there. It was their favorite restaurant. So we'd always go whenever we'd visit. I love that era. I love when Hawaiian, uh, just Hawaiian culture became such a big zeitgeist, cultural yes. zeitgeist. And, you know, everybody was drinking Mai Tais. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> what is that? My daughter is stomping her approval. Your daughter um, sounds like she's 11 feet tall. And she's about four and a half feet tall. Probably weighs about 70 pounds. Yeah. So he successfully reached a reef uh, near the Polynesian island of Puka Puka. And this is what he had to say when he eventually laid his eyes upon. Oh, um, can I just say something? I want to be from Puka Puka. Well, all these places have great names. That's better than Bhutan. Oh, but Bhutan's nice too. I want a listener in, in, in Puka Puka. I wonder if we have one. We do have, uh, we do have listeners in Oceania. So Australia, New Zealand, for sure. I wonder if we've got anybody in Hawaii. I mean, I, I can look at the states, right? What states are, uh, are listening. I feel like we had some in Samoa and Fiji as well recently. So it's possible. That's so cool. That's the best part of doing this. Connecting with a worldwide audience. That's the thing that, I, to be honest, and I know I've said this before, I really wasn't expecting. So, uh, Heyerdahl sees Easter Island, and this is a quote of what he said when he first saw it. This is 1947. Not a soul was to be seen on shore. Only a deserted, petrified world with motionless stone heads gazing at us from their distant ridge, while other equally Motionless stone men lay prostrate in a row on the lava blocks along the coast. The shadows were long, but nothing moved. Nothing but the fiery red sun as it descended slowly into the Black Sea. Alongside the feasibility, Heyerdahl has pointed to the stonework on the island that he believes resembles Inca workmanship, being reminiscent of similar workings in Peru. As well, he noted that the presence of the sweet potato on the island was an oddity, with the only possible origin being South America, because it's the only other, that's where it's from, the sweet potato. Yeah, I knew that. That's fabulous. Isn't that weird, right? Yeah. So, however, it's also possible that Polynesians reached Peru, and then some returned home, where the trade was established with the islands at some point that has been lost to history. So, they could still be a Polynesian origin, but my gosh, if they did come from Polynesia, which is the further, it, it, it's a bigger trip to come from Polynesia to Easter Island than it is to Peru, mm -hmm. why not keep going? Why wouldn't they have kept going? Maybe they did make contact and, you know, um, maybe that's where some of these archaeological uh, things that they learned, they learned over there and then they brought over to their, their people. Mm -hmm. The only weird thing is, is that nothing else from Easter Island went the other way. Right which is odd. So others point to aspects of Hotu Matua's legend as suggesting that the Moai were already there when he arrived, which means they're even more ancient than we, we know. Certainly some of the Moai that, that we see today, they know from carbon dating and stuff like that, that the most recent ones were made in the 15 and 1600s. I think the last one was made in the 1600s. Um, but they do know that there's a lot of older ones, and I'll get into this in a bit more detail later. Uh, they've discovered a whole bunch, but they know, they have a pretty good feeling that they haven't gotten all of them. That there's oh. probably a... a, a pretty significant amount of these that they haven't even discovered yet. How, how could they miss them? Cause they're because completely they're buried. Oh yeah. Oh, or they've been destroyed. Are you going to tell me how they got made? We're going to get into that. Yes. Super. I've always Ooh. wondered that. 
Well, and and like we're talking about this stuff, and I, I don't know about you, but it reminds me too then of the pyramids and the fact that there are pyramids, obviously in Egypt, but also in uh, South America, right? And and was there a connection between those two civilizations? I find that odd. I find that odd that it's not like building a pyramid is like a logical structure to build. So it's really interesting when you start to think about peoples in antiquity and how much did they travel and how much more did they know that we, we don't even realize they knew. Mm -hmm. Right. Or as a lot of people believe, perhaps there's people from another world. We're sharing archeological information with different groups of people. I didn't focus really on that in this, but there's certainly a crowd that believe that, and, I'll, and one of the last things I'll talk about, we'll sort of touch upon that a bit, but obviously that Easter Island has a alien influence. Of course it does. It the technology and stuff like that, right? It would have to, yeah. So the archaeologist Joanne Van Tilburg states, and I'll, I'll talk a lot about Joanne. She's done some amazing research and there's a lot of different articles you can find where she's interviewed and and sort of states her beliefs on the island. And she's one of the leading experts on this story. Um, so she states, however, that all archaeological, linguistic, and biological data is suggestive of Polynesian origins alone. So she doesn't believe that there's any chance that this was uh, ancient Peruvian peoples that populated the island. One other legend, though, may reconcile both theories. It is said that after the arrival of Hotu Matua, another group arrived on the island, the Hanau Epe, or wide race. So that's wide, like W-I-D-E. So these newcomers were described as stout and sturdy with very developed earlobes. So some have suggested <laughs> these people may have been, in fact, the Inca, because that's sort of a description you would use to describe the Inca people, the Incans. Others indicate that these legends don't refer to race at all and instead refer to different classes of society. So intriguingly, although the island is tiny, which at 164 square kilometers is about the size of a medium-sized city, people were segregated into multiple clans that maintained their distinct cultures. Very small island, but all these very tiny, small clusters, these little tiny villages dotted throughout the island. Okay. Archaeological evidence shows stylistically distinct artifacts and communities only 500 meters apart. While DNA and isotope analysis of the natives' remains also showed that they didn't stray too far from their homes, despite, despite the small population size. So, speaking of which, researchers disagree about the size of the island's population. And this is a big thing, and we'll get into this in a little bit. One of the things that Easter Island is famous for is the extinction of its people, right? Depending on the stories that you listen to, when... Westerners started to colonizers started to show up. They describe a, a you know a people on an island that was just devastated mm -hmm. and on the brink of complete collapse. And there are different theories about why that came to be, and we'll get into some of those a little bit later. Again, depending on the story you're listening to, it was either this massive population or it was maybe a little bit more reasonable for the size of the island that it was. So some estimate the population peaked at about 15,000 before it crashed to just a few thousand prior to European contact. Most estimates, however, hover at around 3,000 by 1350 and remained more or less stable until Rogveen spotted the island, after which the population started decreasing as slavery and mass deportation followed shortly thereafter. Oh, God. Because, you know... Colonialism. What a great gift to the world. Oh, man. Not. But what seems certain is that the Easter Island civilization was in decline well before Europeans first set foot on its shores. So this great depopulation. The island used to be covered by palm trees for, they think, about 30,000 years, as many as 16 million of them, some towering 30 meters high. But today, the island is largely treeless. If you look at it on Google map, there's no, there's no trees. Deforestation. Yeah. Right. So early settlers burned down woods to open spaces for farming and began to rapidly increase in population. Besides unsustainable deforestation, there's evidence that palm seed shells were gnawed on by rats, which would have had badly impacted the tree's ability to reproduce. And that's another interesting thing. How did rats get to the island? Right. I mean, it would have had to have been on ships, right? So... Did that come with the colonizers or were they already there? Did they come on these 
Polynesian craft or, or Peruvian craft. Who knows? Are rats not everywhere? Are they not a universal not. thing? No, oh, they're not. Oh, I didn't know that. Once most of the trees were gone, the entire ecosystem rapidly deteriorated. The soil eroded. Most birds vanished along with other plant life. There was no wood available to build canoes or dwellings. People started starving and the population crashed. When Captain James Cook arrived at the island in 1774, his crew counted roughly 700 islanders living miserable lives, their once mighty canoes reduced to patched fragments of driftwood. Oh no! Yeah. No! For this reason, the fate of Easter Island and the self-destructive behavior of its populace has often been called ecocide, a cautionary tale that serves as a reminder of what can happen when humans use their local resources unsustainably. However... More recent research suggests that deforestation was gradual rather than abrupt. In fact, that indigenous peoples of that land actually took time to replant and grow and understood the importance of the trees and what, that they were, were necessary for their survival. In any event, archaeological evidence shows that the Rapa Nui people were resilient, even in the face of deforestation, remained healthy until European contact which contradicts the popular view of a cultural collapse prior to 1722. So perhaps the Rapa Nui weren't as foolish and reckless as some have suggested. After all, they not only managed to flourish for centuries on the most remote inhabited island in the world, but built some of the most impressive monuments in history, the amazing Moai. Yes, absolutely. So that is, I think, the thing that is mo that makes this island... I think the most famous, it's not just this disappearing people, but also these great massive staring heads that everybody has seen and knows about. Right. Yeah. I remember I used to get these things when I was a kid called mystery comics digest. Mm -hmm. And I remember in one of them, there was a, a thing about the Easter Island heads and what they were. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. The, cause my brother and sister, I, I inherited all their, comic books and you're you and my sister are about the same age so i i think i also remember that you say that yeah they were paperback sized books but filled with comics yeah 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 so that would have been like something i would have read at the cottage yeah and that's the and i would i was entirely focused on the mystery ones there was Grimm's, there was ripley's believe it or not and they were all like horror scary based what a surprise mm -hmm. and uh, i loved them i wish i'd kept them too you know why yeah. because they bring back such memories and they're worth a fortune now. There's so much stuff that I didn't keep as a kid that I wish I had. Oh, there's your, your, your daughter practicing her Broadway number. <laughs> She's doing the whole opening scene from Cats by herself. <laughs> Jellicle, songs with Jellicle, Cats. Did you see the movie that came out a few years ago? I did. And was it horrible? It wasn't horrible. Um, okay. It was just a bad choice to do it that way. The 3D rendering, like Avatar style movie. I mean, they could have done it in a much more interesting way. I just think it was a, a bad choice, but I didn't hate the movie. There's movies I've hated more than that. You like the music? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a dated show now and people are weirded out about it. I think I mentioned on the podcast how angry I get when people are like, what's the movie about? I don't understand. Well, <laughs> if you pick up a book, it's T.S. Eliot who wrote a book called Practical Book of Cats. Um, oh. And it's just about the secret no world idea. of cats. I did no idea that that's the, the origin of... Yeah, T.S. Eliot wrote one of the most arguably contemporary, famous contemporary poems of all time, mm -hmm. the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Well, he wrote The Practical Book of Cats, and that's where the contents come from. So it's a, it's a love letter to that. And it's just nonsense. It's this guy making up this world of, of cats and what their society is like. So th this weekend, speaking of, of wanting to understand what the hell this thing means, I showed my kids 2001 Space Odyssey this weekend. Oh, they're too young. Well, I'll say this too. It hasn't aged well. I loved that movie as a kid and it, it's trippy. Very trippy. Do you know what's a better one? The second one. Yes. And I remember love, I saw that one in the theater with my dad as a kid and loved it. Yeah. It's, it's 2001. I mean, Kubrick is trippy. Yeah. And he, and he really went off. He didn't follow the source material very, very well either. No, and I find it, it visually it's beautiful, but I can I find 2001 can get a little bit boring. 
oh my god there's there's two instances in that movie where the screen goes black for five minutes and you just listen to music <laughs> i know it was uh it was an artistic experiment uh-huh. yeah but yeah i i get you i hear you brother so they're still you. talking about it about how horrible of a movie it was i don't think it's horrible i just think it's uh, interesting yes and i was trying to explain like the the greater meaning behind it but they wouldn't have i mean they, they lost them at the beginning with the monkeys well they're too young it's it's a, not a young person's movie at all but i saw no. it as a kid and i thought it was scary and no, fun. i didn't i thought it was weird but you were older yeah. than me yeah and i probably saw it because i wouldn't have had access to videos or anything so i probably saw it when i was a bit older you're right yeah because yeah, it wasn't the same now as you can get access to anything anytime right yeah good so point speaking of uh weird things so these moai Archaeologists have documented 887 of the massive statues. What? 887. I thought there was like four. No, they're all over the place oh, on this tiny eight, island. 887? 887. But there may be, they think, as many as, well, well over a thousand of them on the island. So they think that they, they, they could, there could still be another couple, you know, two, three hundred more that have not been discovered yet. I wonder if it's just some stone carver who just could only do one thing really well. <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> so the, these massive statues carved from mostly volcanic rock uh, usually weigh about 80 tons, <gasps> 80 tons, not eight tons, God, 80 tons, and can reach 10 meters or 32.8 feet in height, though the average is around half that how these statues were ever created and then moved into position remains a mystery. Captain James Cook wrote in 1774, we could hardly conceive how these islanders, wholly unacquainted with any mechanical power, could raise such stupendous figures. Why the early Easter Islands undertook this colossal effort deep in their isolation is also a mystery. Unfortunately, the Rapa Nui did not keep a written record and the oral history is scant. But recent research is starting to fit at least some of the pieces into this puzzle, providing clues as to the purpose and significance of these stone giants that have stirred all of our imagination for so long. Wow. More than 95% of the Moai were carved in a quarry at the volcano Rano Raraku. This quarry is rich in tuff, that's spelled T-U-F-F, which is compressed volcanic ash, and is actually quite easy to carve with limited tools. The natives had no metal at all and only used stone tools called toki. From the quarry, the heavy statues were then transported to the coast, which was often kilometers away. How they were transported can only be speculated on, but they likely employed wooden logs, which they rolled to move the massive monoliths, or used wooden sleds pulled by ropes. Some have even speculated that maybe they attached ropes to the top and they kind of walked the, these things, you, kind of like you would a refrigerator when you're moving yeah, a refrigerator yeah, yeah, sort yeah. Of corner by corner. But if you look at them, how big, like actually how huge, the, there's no way they could have done it. There's no way. They're like three stories high in, in some cases. Well, maybe the aliens just came down with their tractor beam and just moved it from place to place. To them, it would just be a little tiny chess piece. Yes, it would. However, they managed to transport the statues. They did so very gently without breaking the nose, lips, and other features. There's evidence that sometimes accidents did sometimes happen, though. Uh, there are a few statues with broken heads and, and statues lying at the bottom of slopes. In the Rapa Nui civilization's later years, a pukau of red scoria stone from the Pruna Pau Quarry, I love saying these names, uh, from, the pr- from the Pruna Pau Quarry would sometimes be placed on the head of the statue, a sign of mana or mental power. The final touch would be marked with eyes of coral, thereby completing the moai, turning it into a living face. And apparently they only started working on the eyes once they it was in its final spot. That was never done at the quarry. I've never noticed that they had eyes. I've always just noticed they had big brows, like big solemn eyebrows. And then things would have been placed in those sockets. Oh, how creepy. That's so creepy. However, half of all identified moai 
nearly 400 statues were found still idling at the Ranu Raraku quarry. Only a third of the statues reached their final resting place, while around 10% were found lying in transit outside of Ranu Raraku. It's unclear why so many Moai never left their quarry after the craftsmen went to such lengths to carve them, but the great challenges when attempting to move such large blocks of stone didn't make it easy. So it's, it's odd because it almost looks like it was just left all of a sudden. Wow. Like they, they had to just stop all work and, and never got back to it. Wow. I can't remember if I have this in my notes. It would take a team uh, uh, of men about a year to carve one. Oh, oh yes. my God. Okay. To carve it. That's not including the transport and all that. That's just So they just suddenly the one day just stopped. Yeah. Do you know what I bet happened? I bet they were all together and their deity finally appeared and it didn't look anything like the statues. And everyone turns to the stone carver guy and goes, Jerry, that doesn't look anything like our deity. <laughs> nice one. So they're just like, well, screw that. It's Jerry. Oh, that'd be funny, eh? That would actually be a funny movie. It would be yes. the, de- the deity appears and it doesn't look like that. Yeah. That would be something all. out of like the hitchhiker's guide. Yeah. It's just a big happy person. Hi guys. You don't look like that. Okay. I- I've got to stop. <laughs> the purpose of these Riley, do you want to know what they think? What the purpose of these statues were? Well, I thought I was worshiping deity. So tell me the purpose. Well, that sure. So experts cannot agree on their purpose, there's a, there's a number of different theories out there. One theory suggests these standing stones were created as repositories for the mana of tribal leaders on the island. The inhabitants believing that they held their inner force. Uh, the word Moai means so that he can exist. These elder stones would then protect the village from evil. Okay. So, so Dan, there's stones. nobody left of this civilization. Oh, no, there are. Yes, so, there But are. there's no oral history. There's no, nothing. there is not. And they were ravaged. They were they were ravaged. They had some really horrific people come through, come their way, and a lot of people were taken away from the island and sold into slavery. There was a a guy, I think he was Portuguese, who came in and uh, basically installed himself as king and raped the people and killed the people, and he kind of drove them right into the ground. It was it was very sad. What a wonderful world we live in. Oh man. Another popular theory is that they actually had a scientific purpose and meaning. And I think this is so cool. The statues don't capture the defining features of individuals. You know, when you look at statues in Rome or Greece, you could tell who they are, right? That's Alexander the Great, or that's Julius Caesar on the coin even. Instead, they're all more or less standardized in design, representing a generic male head with exaggerated features. Carl Lipo, an anthropologist at Binghamton University, doesn't buy into the idea that the Moai represent their ancestors. He says, and I quote, There are no ahu and statues found on the top of hills, the obvious place where you'd expect to find monuments meant to send a symbolic message. The Moai are instead placed right next to where the natives lived and worked, which suggests they may be landmarks positioned near a valuable resource. Ah, Lipo and colleagues mapped the location of the Moai alongside the location of various important resources, such as farmlands, freshwater, and good fishing spots. The statistical analysis suggests the Moai sites were most associated with sources of potable water. He said, and I quote, Every single time we found a big source of fresh water, there'd be a statue and a nahu. And we saw this over and over and over again. And places where we didn't find fresh water, we didn't find statues. And Ahu, Lipo has stated. The statues were placed where they are, since that's where people could find the resources they needed to survive. Wow. So they're almost like markers, like way, waypoints. Oh, but there's so much more, Riley. Oh, let me go. It sounds on. like a TV ad, but wait, yes, there's so but wait, much there's more. more. Since there were many culturally distinct tribes on the small island, and there's a great deal of variation in terms of size for the statues, the Moai could also serve to signal status to a neighboring community. Large statues are costly, meaning the biggest Moai could be regarded as proof that a particular group of tribesmen is clever and hardworking. Another line of thought suggests the statues are sacred sites of worship. When Rogveen arrived on the island in 1722, 
He described in his ship log how he witnessed natives praying to the statues. And he and that there were priests that seemed, you know, to be different from others, sort of organizing these things. So there definitely seems to have been at least one and it makes sense that there would be a religious angle to these things. Of course, be, it does. Otherwise, you could just re- create like a pillar or something like that if you needed to mark out where resources were, right? Yeah. Finally, the giant stone sculptures may have served an important role in farming. And not for astronomy purposes as seen with other megalithic sites like Stonehenge, but in the very literal sense. And this is the thing I think is the coolest. The soil on Easter Island is highly prone to erosion, especially in the absence of the, of, of, you know, the depletion of their woods. But when Joanne Van Tilburg, who I mentioned earlier, sampled the soil around quarries, she found it was unexpectedly fertile, high in calcium and phosphorus. She said, Our analysis showed, in addition to serving as a quarry in a place for carving statues, Ranu Reriku was also the site of a productive agricultural area. Tilburg said in a statement. Coupled with a fresh water source in the quarry, it appears the practice of quarrying itself helped boost soil fertility and food production in the immediate surroundings. In related research, anthropologist Mara Mulrooney of the, I love the name of this school, of the Bernice Pauai Bishop Museum in Honolulu, analyzed various archaeological sites on the island and found the Rapa Nui people cultivated gardens of yams, sweet potatoes, and taro, and other crops in enclosures with stones and boulders strategically placed on the soil. The rocks not only protected the plants from the wind and deterred weed growth, but also boosted soil nutrients thanks to the weathering of the minerals. These statues are filled with nutrients that allowed them to grow things. So they're almost like those those plant food sticks that you can stick in your plants and they slowly just keep your plants happy. That's right. What a stupid analogy. That's the best <laughs> I could do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're not wrong. These are these they they they've possibly purposely placed these things uh, where they did because that would help them grow food and it helped protect them from erosion and wind and all that. Which tells you again how advanced these people were. If quarry sites were the main farming plots, this would explain why so many statues haven't been moved from their origin. Perhaps the islanders were not aware that the volcanic statues were making the soil fertile thanks to the minerals they contain and instead attributed their plant growth to some divine intervention. But as such, the statues may serve a double role as a ritual object and a fertilizer. And I think that's so cool. That is really cool if it's true. Yeah. Well, it is true. It, they do act as a fertilizer. Like but they, if they knew it, like, did they know that? I like to think that they did. Why not? Like, why are we assuming that they had no clue, right? Exactly. What have you moved on to? You were drinking a Coke and coffee. What's that? This is an iced tea. Just an iced tea. Okay. Yeah, just an iced tea. The most impressive of the Moai is known as El Gigante, standing 65 feet high and oh. weighing almost 80 tons. 65 feet? 65 feet. Wow. I got to see that, man. The massive megalith stands over the road leading to the Rano Raraku volcano where the rock was utilized for the carving of the statues mentioned earlier. These gigantic stones were hauled down the slopes of Rano Raraku being carved at the base. The Moai do seem to be astrologically aligned, uh, even if that's not their sole purpose, and most face inward toward the island, making the single statue that points out to the sea an oddity. Uh, this single statue is located at Ahu Akivi, a special place for the Rapa Nui civilization. The function of this statue is, un- is unknown, yet many speculate that perhaps it served as a lookout. So all the statues face in, except for this one, which faces out over the sea. Very cool. One of the statues, the Tukaturi, is even more mysterious than the rest. Being more realistic in its proportions, the Tukaturi statue is utterly different in terms of style, also being much smaller than the rest of the Moai. The figure doesn't seem to have the dignity of the elder statues. It is carved in a kneeling position with its hands on its knees and is made from a completely different type of stone. In fact, what's interesting about this is it actually has more facial expression. It even looks like it has a little beard. So if you if you look that one up, the Tukatiri, that's T U K U T U R I, you'll see it looks nothing like the other ones. But it, again, it's this massive stone statue. 
I guess Jerry was experimenting. Jerry was experimenting. Maybe that they made that one after their alien god showed up, and that is what he actually looks like. And he had a little beard. <laughs> a soul patch. <clears throat> Intriguingly, when archaeological excavations began at the island in 1914, researchers discovered that the Easter Island heads were not heads at all. Did you know this? I do know this. Okay. Buried under the ground are the enormous connected bodies. The revelation only added to the awe-inspiring nature of the work that had been done and offered new insight into the culture and art. The heads, in fact, only measure around three-eighths of the total size of the statue, with the bodies featuring elongated figures. So when we're saying these things were 65 feet high, most of that's buried underground. Which again, uh, when did they discover that they were buried underground again? What was the year you just said it? Uh, it was um, 1914. You know what was interesting, though? I didn't know that till I was an adult. I always assumed they were just heads, so I don't think it was something that was widely communicated in the sort of, you know, in, in reporting on that. No, I think often when we, the images that we've seen too are, are the unexcavated versions. Yeah. 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 But that's amazing too, that they would be able to dig again down that deep. They don't have metal tools. So that in itself is an engineering marvel that they were able to build these shafts and not damage these statues as they planted them into the ground. Incredible. Yeah, it's weird. Many Moai have been broken and laying on the ground following a rebellion that occurred on the island in the 1500s. Following the uprisings, a new warrior class developed on the island that worshipped gods such as the Birdman and Makemake. They carved glyphs for these new gods in the Moai, supplanting the old ways with a society centered on strength and power. And some speculate, too, that that is why some of the ancient... Uh, stories were where they were lost, where there was this new power struggle, this new wave of beliefs and ideas, mm -hmm. and the old ancient ways were lost at that time during this this revolution, um, civil war that occurred on the island. Okay. Now, this is the last mystery that I'm going to talk about, and then we'll wrap this this puppy up. It's the mystery of the Rongoro Rongo scripture. I love all of the words. Yes. The Rongoro Rongo scripture, or Kohau Rongo Rongo, as the natives call it, is a scripture system consisting of glyphs carved on wood or tablets, which to this day have yet to be deciphered. And I know you like these types of mysteries. Oh, I love stuff like this. This is, and this is why I love Easter Island because it's just it's all these cool riddles built into this place. Yeah. The most common translation of the term kohau is wood used for marking the hull of a canoe, and rongo rongo means the great message or great study. And this is kind of all we know about these tablets and what the people know. They know that they contain a great message. Okay. They don't know what, it, what that message is. According to oral tradition, Hotumatua had 67 tablets that corresponded with the 67 Maori wisdoms, such as knowing how to sail and knowing astronomy. However, no other writing of this kind that is found on these, on the Rongo Rongo tablets has been found anywhere in Polynesia or anywhere else in the world, which is strange. This is a complete unique language never seen before. Fabulous. Okay. Which is strange, again, considering that the, the Polynesian angle, right? And that they can mm -hmm. speak similar language. There's linguistically, there's connections, but this written language, you will find it nowhere else in the world. Other researchers think that the Rongo, Rong, sorry, the Rongo Rongo scripture was invented after the arrival of the Spaniards in 1770, since they asked the local king to sign the island assignment contract. This being the first contact the Rapa Nui had with Western scripture. So they were kind of, well, okay, we'll come up with our own little thing. And they created a language there on the spot. A lot of people don't buy that theory though. Beyond these post theories about its origin, it is most likely that the meaning behind the Rongo, Rongo scripture will remain a mystery for a very long time. Unfortunately, there are only 27 original pieces uh, with these inscription on, inscriptions on them and that they're all scattered all over the world in different museums. No original pieces even remain on the island itself. So this scarcity and dispersion, as well as the lack of knowledge about the ancient Rapa Nui language, makes it almost impossible to find a pattern that will decipher them. 
The symbols and glyphs were carved using shark teeth or obsidian flakes, and they sort of seemed to represent anthropomorphic beings in different positions, fantastic creatures that resemble birds, aquatic animals, or plants, but also celestial beings, things that are sort of out of this world, things that we've never seen before. Because of this scripture, it is believed that this is a symbolic scripture rather than a phonetic one. Okay. And hopefully the scripture will be deciphered one day and we'll know what this ancient wisdom is. But until then, we have to stay tuned. I'm sure the internet's on it. So, Riley, Easter Island remains to this day a a place filled with mystery and lore. The Rapa Nui still exists. There are inhabitants on the island. If you have a few spare bucks, you can go visit. Do they have like a government, a flag? Are they a distinct society? They are actually technically a part of Chile. Oh, okay. In fact, they... They really suffered as well when Pinochet, uh, the fascist dictator, right. came into yeah. power. They, they again, they got ravaged and, and hammered. It's kind of gone on. They've been taken advantage of for a very long time by Western society. Wow. So perhaps now that this story is out there, more efforts can uh, occur to you know preserve that culture and those people. Because uh, I didn't know a lot of this at all, right? Before no, I didn't either. Story. So people go there to see the heads. That's the thing, right? Yeah. Interesting. So what about aliens? With the, the scriptures, the Rongo Rongo scriptures, the fact that this is a completely foreign set of writing, that's strange. So people think, well, perhaps this is an alien language, that that this is what was given to them and, and how they were, you know, taught what they the skills that they, they learned. As well, some of the, the pictograms on the on the Rongo Rongo look like aliens like they don't look like human beings they're you know they're celestial type beings they could be their gods right too that they but it could also then be aliens so of course just like how people have talked about with the 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 pyramids that there might have been sort of alien influence in the design of those uh, you know the, the the mayan temples but also the egyptian temples so too with these these massive 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 sculptures Mm-hmm. And that would have not just been rolled and moved from a quarry several kilometers away, but also then manipulated gingerly into a very exact place. You know, uh, when you were mentioning those societies, there's a society I keep coming across that I know nothing about whenever I research stuff like this called the Toltecs. And I'm going to have to do a, a deep dive on who the Toltecs are for our listeners, because I think there's something there that needs to be unearthed. But I wanted to say this. Is, can I say stuff like this now? Are you done? Yes, you I'm done. Okay. You're allowed to talk. So Dan, <laughs> so in all seriousness, Dan, of, of all the contexts in which we've kind of touched on the fact that aliens might have visited Earth mm-hmm. and blah, 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 like the ones that I find the least believable for me are the ones, you know, where, you know, Janet is driving and she's kidnapped <laughs> and, you know, aliens took me on the craft. And yeah, they but put some, some of the stories you've shared with us that are like that are interesting, like the uh, the fire in the sky story. But I'm and- not saying that, that I have a level of belief in them. I find them intriguing, but I'm not saying that I have a level of belief. Okay. But the ancient civilizations and some of the things that have occurred and some of those, the constructions that have occurred and some of the images those are the things that make me lean more heavily into the fact that, yeah, something has visited this planet, you know. I guess where that's interesting is that if there's a massive leap, a technological leap, where there was nothing and all of a sudden they're doing incredible things. Part of the problem with ancient history is we don't know what maybe preceded it. We don't know how intelligent they were and how they came upon, how long it took the Egyptians to to figure out what they did, you know, or the Romans or the the Mayans or Aztecs, or the mysterious Toltecs, or the mysterious <laughs> Toltecs, who I know I know nothing of. By the way, I just keep coming I across the name. The name but it, yeah, I, I I'm gonna find. I'll find out. I promise, dear listener, I'll find out and I'll do a show on the on who the Toltecs are. Uh, if it's boring, I won't. But I'm I'm hoping it won't be. And going back to what you were just saying, though, uh, to a more modern version of that would be Bob Lazar. And what he has described, um, you know, happening in in, um, in Area 51 with the technology that he described, the propulsion system, right? That that uh, element that was not that he claimed existed in the 1980s that didn't until the early 2000s when ooh, all of a sudden it's there again. That would be an example of aliens imparting technology on on humanity to make to allow us to sort of take that next leap forward, which 
leads to 2001 Space Odyssey again. <laughs> and the little baby at the end. Yeah, the star child. Star child. All right, so that's the story, uh, Riley. I think it's a fun one. I wanted to do something a little bit different tonight, not so dark. And very historical. You were yes. very you were very history channel yes. tonight. You I, were channeling yes. the history channel. I, I wanted to go there, and I did, damn it. I did. Folks, thanks for listening to The Weird. We appreciate your uh, support and your listenership. Uh, if uh, you want to repay us, please spread the word of The Weird with, uh, you know, go down to a local school at recess, uh, go up to the fence and just start screaming at the teachers and maybe the kids to start listening to The Weird. Explain to them that you can listen to The Weird on any uh, podcast provider and uh, you know it's free it's fun and it's educational the weird Riley I think that's it yeah uh, Dan great show um, you know what I, one thing I did want to say to you oh, was God, that when go. you mentioned cook oh shut up when you mentioned cook the explorer there's also a very remote place called the cook Islands yes. that have always fascinated me because it's so remote it's just in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm yeah, that's all I wanted to say was the Cook Islands. I've always been and obsessed probably with. discovered. I would imagine discovered on that same on that same voyage. More than likely. So when you mentioned the cook that cooked the explorer earlier, I it jarred my memory into um mm-hmm. into my obsession when I was younger with Cook Islands. Okay, folks, um, we love that you join us on this wild, madcap, and crazy journey. Please uh, join us again next week. We'll have further tales from the world of the weird. Um, I'm Ronnie. Good night. And I'm Dan, I think. Good night as well.